From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter, but this is not the Vine Pair Podcast. Today, we are bringing you a special episode from our Wine 101 podcast that is hosted by our tastings director, Keith Beavers. For many of you out there right now, you're probably thinking, ah, we're moving into fall, you know, great time of year, leaves change, and in the world of wine, that means harvest. So we're going to bring you Keith's Wine 101 episode on the vineyard. You're going to learn everything there is to know about how grapes are grown, how we harvest them, when we harvest them, what we do with them once we harvest them. Uh, you know, if you're not listening to the, the series already, you should join the thousands of listeners that are listening to Keith every single week to learn everything there is to know about wine. And with that, Keith, take it away. My name is Keith Beavers, and I have a very unhealthy relationship with peanut butter. Felt so good to get that out. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode three of Vine Pair's Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I'm the tastings director of Vine Pair. What's going on? So after two episodes, you guys got some terms in your head, you got some ideas in your head, your confidence is building in wine, you're really stoked, and before we talk about how the stuff is actually made, wine, we gotta talk about the grapevine. It's so important, not enough people talk about it, and it's a fascinating thing, so let's get down on the dirt with the grapevine. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Mount Peak Winery. Perched between Napa and Sonoma Valleys, hidden along the spine of the Mayacamas Mountains, stands a forgotten tribute to California winemaking. The Mount Peak Winery, robed in the red, iron-rich soils of the Monte Rosso Vineyard, was a marvel of innovation when it opened in 1886. 1886, guys, that's like pre-prohibition when wine in California, okay, we'll talk about it at some point. Today, we honor the historic Mount Peak Winery with three iconic wines, each inspired by its own distinct site at the world-renowned Monte Rosso Vineyard. Indulge in our Rattlesnake Zinfandel, Sentinel Cabernet Sauvignon, or Gravity Red Blend and raise a glass to California history. Some serious history here, guys. So often when I'm talking to winemakers, or if I'm in a vineyard tour, maybe you guys have experienced this this as well. You're talking to the winemaker, you have a glass of wine in your hand, and they look at you and they say, are you enjoying that glass of wine? That's awesome, just so you know. It all starts in the vineyard. And it's so true. It's nature, I mean, that's a beauty of wine. Wine is dependent. Good wine, wine that's enjoyable, is dependent on the agriculture out there in the vineyard. And that's really what a vineyard is. It's a field (laughs) of agriculture, but it's more than that, isn't it? The output of this field of agriculture creates something compelling and pleasurable. And to call it a field of agriculture just sounds like, okay, So the word vineyard or vineyard just kind of connotes this sort of like, oh, the dappling sun peeking through the canopies of leaves, touching the grapes in the morning dew. Am I getting a little poetic here? But you know, when you look at a vineyard, you kind of get excited. Like, wow, that's that's where wine starts. That's where grapes come from to make wine. And they're beautiful to look at. I mean, who doesn't like going to a vineyard or a winery, like at sunset or something, with a glass of wine in your hand, the vineyard in the background, taking selfies until you can't see straight? Am I right? I mean, do we do that with cornfields? I, I, love, I love corn. I'm half hillbilly, doing what I love my corn. 
but we just cannot deny the romance of a vineyard. Just can't. And what's in that vineyard? A bunch of vines. Isn't that crazy? Like a vine. We know, you know, what do we know about vines? I mean, there's the, there's the Boston Ivy, which is the vine for some reason that for a long time, uh, uh, colleges would plant vines that grow up walls to look really, I don't know, collegiate. And there are other crops out there that grow on vines, tomatoes, kiwi, watermelon, honeydew. We don't call those vineyards, do we? So what is this thing called a grapevine? Because at some point, it was in the wild, and we as humans domesticated it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next episode, but, you know, humans didn't just walk through a cusp of trees and go, oh my God, look at those beautifully rowed, neat vines. It's <laughs> so weird. Let's keep doing that. But let's be real. The grapevine is kind of like the most famous vine, you know? out there? I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, it's definitely one of the most important fruit crops in the world because here are some stats to prove that craziness. In 2012, 18.4 million acres of vineyards on the planet were producing almost 7 million gallons of juice. That's a lot. Of all the vineyards on the globe, 70% of that output is for wine. The other 30% is table grapes, uh, drying grapes like Sunmade, uh, grape juice for like, you know, Juicy Juice or Capri Suns, and brandy. Delish. And grapevines are grown on every continent on the planet. I mean, except for Antarctica. I mean, obviously, right, guys? So there are grapevines everywhere. I mean, most of them are planted in Europe, but they're everywhere. And I mean, most of them are in like Spain, France, and Italy, but there are grapevines everywhere. And on top of that, there are thousands of different kinds of grape varieties that make all different styles of wine. This is like, no wonder why people are overwhelmed with wine. You see, in the kingdom of plants, the kingdom of plants, God, it just felt right. There's a family called the Vitaceae family, which is a group of flowering plants. And in the Vitaceae family, there's a bunch of genera, that's plural for genus, but there's one genus called Vitis. And that's the grape. And in the Vitis genus, there are a bunch of species, but there's one species called Vitis vinifera. And that species produces about up to 8,000 different kinds of grape varieties with names like Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Grunewaldina, Alborino, it's the, it's the species that is the single source of every wine you've ever consumed in your life. <laughs> is that crazy? And in the book Wine Grapes, according to the Jedi Master of Wine, I'm sorry, uh, Janice Robinson is a master of wine. She's a wine critic, and she wrote Wine Grapes with Hugh Johnson. But I call her, I think the Jedi Master of Wine is a more appropriate title. But in Wine Grapes, of she says, of all the varieties, up to, up, up to the eight thousand different varieties of grapes that are grown in this particular species, only a little over 1,300 have been identified to make wine commercially. So there's more out there, guys. Oh, God. There are other Vitis species out there that make wine. There's about 70 of them. And oddly enough, a lot of them come from the United States. Isn't that weird? 
They have names like Vitis Riparia, Vitis Labrusca, Vitis Bondelier. And you can technically make wine from these grapes, but really these days, these grapes are used mostly for their rootstock. Because back in the day, just before the Civil War, there was a louse called Phylloxera that destroyed almost all of the planet's vineyards. It's crazy. We're going to have to talk about it. But American rootstock saved the day. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's what these, roots, that's what these vines are mainly used for. In the wild... The grapevine is known as a woodland climber or a tendril climber. And all a grapevine wants to do is pop out of the ground, grow some tendrils, find a tree, and work its way up the trunk of the tree however it needs to, whether it needs to wind around or whatever, go towards the canopy of the tree, towards the light, because a grapevine is what is called positively phototropic. It always grows towards the light. It wants to go above the canopy into the light, and then it wants to flower and grow grapes so that a bird can eat those grapes and disperse the seeds to other climates and soils. It kind of just wants to take over the world, I think. You see, the grapevine is programmed as a survivor. It is hitching a ride on other plants. So what's happening here is, you think this is crazy above ground? What's going on below ground is just nuts. Like every plant has a root system, right? And they, the, the roots go down and look for nutrients. But you see, the, the, the grapevine, it knows it's hitching a ride. So it has to go below all the other root systems that are already supping on the nutrients in that part of the soil. So grapevines are programmed to go all the way down, sometimes 20 feet into the earth to find their nutrients. So it's crazy, but a vine, a grapevine thrives in poor soil. So we have this highly competitive plant that grows towards the light and thrives in poor soil. Wow. So what we do as humans is when we domesticated this vine, we have to mimic that for it to thrive so we can make awesome fruit to make awesome wine for your face. Because it thrives in poor soils, you often see pictures of vineyards that are on slopes of hills where the runoff soil is always going to be less nutrient than the soils in the valley. I mean, there are vines in the valleys, but we're talking about ideal situations here. And because the vine is positively phototropic and always grows towards the light, you often see vines not only on the slopes of hills, but growing on slopes, the slopes of the hill that go towards the light. Eastern facing, southern facing, whatever facing the region needs to get the most sun hours. And because it's highly competitive and there's no trees around for it to really compete with like significant root systems, often plants that are competitive with the vine are planted in the vineyard so that the vine thinks it's competing and has to go down and get those soils because, because of the natural ability of the vine to go deep into the soil, because of that, it just so happens that the deeper the root system goes, the more regular the transfer of nutrients is to, the, to above ground. So they want to force these vines to think they're in poor soil, so they go deeper and deeper and deeper. Is that crazy, guys? Am I, am I the only one? I love this stuff. Am I the only one? I'm not even, I don't even grow vines. And because the vine is going to do what it's going to do, we can't stop the vine from doing what it wants. We just guide it in the right direction. That's what vineyards are for. So we put these vines into rows. We put poles on them so they can grow up the poles. And then we use these things called trellising systems so that the, the, the shoots can go out in certain directions to regulate the positions of where the fruit is going to grow so that we have control over that 
in addition to that, and keeping them healthy, but in addition to that, helping with ease of cultivation, whether it's by machine or by hand. So you have this vineyard, right? And after a long fall and winter sleep, it starts to wake up. And as you look across the vineyard, it doesn't look like it's awake. Not yet. What's happening is the vines are going through a process called bleeding. I know it sounds intense, but it's really just like the vines shedding themselves of moisture from their long sleep and they're shedding that moisture through pruning knocks from the previous harvest. And after a few weeks, as it gets a little bit warmer outside, we start looking at this vineyard and now we see a little bit of a green tinge. Kind of feels like the vineyard is alive because these buds begin to swell and eventually these buds break open and a leaf emerges. This is called bud break. It's the first real sign that we're about to get some grapes. So after about two months, give or take, a vineyard goes through and finishes its bud break. The next step is the flowering process because we need the flowers for the pollen for the fertilization to get the grapes. Am I saying grapes too much? And during the flowering process, a flower bursts out of the buds and it releases pollen into the air. And these aren't like pretty orchid-like flowers or anything. It literally looks like, imagine a bunch of grapes, a big stem with all the little stems that the grapes are attached to, but instead of that, it's just a bunch of little flowers. It's not the most, I mean, it's pretty, but it's not like, oh my God, look, the flowers of the grapevine. But these flowers release pollen, and these pollen grains fall back into the areas where they germinate, and that then creates little seeds, up to four per what will be a berry or a grape. <gasps> I said grape again. And then that little flower starts turning into a grape. <laughs> and for about a week, these little berries are being formed. And this is what's called fruit set. And it is, this is, this is it, guys. This is, this is the little grape bunch. When you look at the... You know, when you look at a grape bunch again, you see a grape bunch, right? Imagine them all being very small and very green. So it's this little baby grape bunch, and it's all green. It doesn't have color yet. It's all, it's all chlorophyll from the sun and all the, all the growing stuff inside. In that grape is a bunch of very kind of harsh acidity. And it's growing fast, the vineyard. It's growing really rapidly. And then all of a sudden, everything kind of slows down for a minute. And this is the moment that the French call Verizon. Did I mention I'm terrible at pronouncing French? Okay. And as everything slows down, these berries start to change color and they start to swell a little bit and they start to soften and they start to produce sugar. And as they produce the natural sugar, it pushes away that harsh acidity. Not all of it, but some of it. For red wine grapes, they turn into sort of a reddish black. And for white wine grapes, they turn into a yellowish green. We've seen, we've all seen this. The really cool thing is though, I mean, it's really bizarre if you look at a very zone when it's happening in a vineyard because it doesn't all happen simultaneously. So you look at a bunch of grapes and like if it's a red wine grape bunch, the red grapes will become red like over days. Like you come, you, one day you look at it and there's like three and you come back the next day, there's like four. It's pretty fascinating nature stuff. And now that these grapes are the color that you and I are familiar with, the vine starts growing rapidly again. It starts creating stuff like glucose and fructose. Those are just things to help it grow. And that's when we as humans have to decide when do we pick these grapes? Because what's happening before our very zone is the vine's like, yo, don't, don't eat me yet. Actually, it's a, it's a defense mechanism. If, a, if, a, if an animal or you, we're all animals, <laughs> pick a big green grape or what will be a grape from there and you put it in your mouth, you will spit it out in disgust because all that acidity is like, ugh. And there's a stuff called methozypyrazine in there that tastes 
like nasty, harsh pepper that will just kind of like overwhelm your senses. It's very intense, but that peppery note does end up in the wine sometime, and we'll talk about that next episode. But anyway, after Verizon, the grapes will continue to accumulate sugar, and they'll continue to push away the acidity. So there's a balance here that a, a vineyard manager or a winemaker has this kind of a hard decision to make. You got to choose when to pick those grapes when the acidity and the sugar are at, at the right proportions so that you know that when you make that wine, it will be balanced. Imagine that kind of pressure. <laughs> and speaking of pressure, as that growing stage is happening, there are so many challenges out there in nature. There are pests, there are fungus or fungi, there is wind, rain, heat, frost, hail, foxes, deer, birds, rabbits, you name it. As these vines are growing, these humans have to combat all this stuff to make sure that the result is good enough for wine, again, for your face. So after an entire growing season and combating all the challenges, if the vineyard is happy and the grapes are ready to go, it's harvest season, which I, you can imagine is a crazy season where humans rush into the vineyard, clip these grape bunches, and get, in, get them ready to bring into the winery. This is the first half of what we call a vintage. The second half entails taking those grapes to a winery and start the winemaking process, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. And I know you're stoked, but think about this, guys. Like I said in the beginning, it's, it's, it's the quality of that agriculture that is needed for the quality of the resulting wine. And to do this, Humans have to be involved during the entire process. It is interesting. Wine is that is is so interesting to me because the force of nature that is wine, a vineyard, a grapevine, the winemaking process, all this stuff. Nature is this thing, it just happens. But we as humans are stewards of that. We guide this thing along to turn it into something called wine. I don't know if we weren't involved if it would be called wine or not. And we'll see in the next episode, Red Winemaking, where nature is gonna do its thing. But there are things that we as humans do to kind of intervene to guide this thing along. It's going to be awesome. But you think you think I like vines, guys? Wait to hear me talk about red wine making. <laughs> well, I do believe we are now acquainted with the grapevine wine lovers. Don't you think? We even know how a grape is grown. And then we're going to harvest. Now we're about to go and make some red wine. So next week, join me and we'll get nice with how red wine is made, which will create a nice foundation for your understanding about how other colors of wine are made. So you got to check in next week. If you're digging what I'm doing, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, just go ahead and give me a rating on iTunes or tell a friend, subscribe. Let's get this thing up here so everyone can learn about wine. I want to give a shout out to Brene Royal, the vineyard manager at Mount Peak Winery. Her and I talked for a little bit and got some background for this episode. So thank you so much. Check me out on Instagram. It's at VinePairKeith. I do all my stuff in stories. And also, you've got to follow VinePair on Instagram, which is at VinePair. And don't forget to listen to the VinePair podcast, which is hosted by Erica, Adam, and Zach. It's a great deep dive into drinks culture every week. Now for some credits. How about that? Wine 101 is recorded and produced by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the VinePair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon. I also want to thank Daniel Grinberg for making the most legit Wine 101 logo. And I got to thank Darby Seaside for making this amazing song. I mean, listen to this epic stuff.
And finally, I want to thank the Vine Pear staff for helping me learn more every day. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Mount Peak Winery. Perched between Napa and Sonoma Valleys, hidden along the spine of the Mayacamas Mountains, stands a forgotten tribute to California winemaking. The Mount Peak Winery, robed in the red, iron-rich soils of the Monte Rosso Vineyard, was a marvel of innovation when it opened in 1886. Today, we honor the historic Mount Peak Winery with three iconic wines, each inspired by its own distinct site at the world-renowned Monte Rosso Vineyard. Indulge in our Rattlesnake Zinfandel, Sentinel Cabernet Sauvignon, or Gravity Red and raise a glass to California history.